Mojo. Ah, yes, here it is. Got your mojo working. Pizzazz, oomph, zest, passion, energy, vibe, ACDC, the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, that can't be right. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Sure is nice having you with us. Another cracking show this week. Thank you, AP. And I have to say, mate, I do love the shirt you wore. Good. <laughs> As always, we've got the boys here in the Stu Stu studio. And uh, just for those people who are new to the show, what are we about? Robbo and I and, uh, yes, our voiceover guy, AP, we like to find people that we think have got their mojo working. They've got a little something-something going on. They, they just have that spring in their step. They're good at what they do. They've got an opinion. They've got stuff to share. They're good people. We like to extract some knowledge to help you get your mojo working in and out of the workplace. The man driving it behind the panel, he is the super glue of the Mojo Radio Show. How's it going, Robbo? It's going very well, mate, and you? Very, very good. Had a good week this week. I've been yeah. uh, out and about. I was hosting, it's actually a bit of a challenging gig. I hosted a conference for 700 of Australia's best CEOs all in one room. Wow. And then that's uh, a lot of ego MC- in one room. Yeah, then I emceed the dinner. I got to say, one of the highlights, though, was seeing a lady called Ronnie Khan from Oz Harvest, mm, mm. who did a story on the background to Oz Harvest. Yep. What a great and cause what, that is. Well, what was really good about it, specifically for you and I, is that um, Ronnie was the first person to do repurposing of food in Australia through Oz Harvest, ah, which okay, ties great. back to the real junk food project. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Nice one. You know, and, and Oz Harvest have repurposed 38 million meals. Wow. Wow. Isn't that unreal? Extraordinary? Yeah. 12, 12 million tons of food that would have gone into landfill. Anyway, so I, I digress, but that was uh, it was a highlight meeting and speaking with Ronnie Khan from Oz Harvest. So, I think um, we should talk to her, mate. Well, I'm going to. She's very, very busy. Uh, I did a quick interview with her at the dinner, um, mm. but I am going to follow her up because, mm. um, I mean, she is just, man, talk about energy and passion I and having imagine. a dream and executing. She's an absolute cracker. Gee, yeah. I'm a fan. I just, Absolutely. I just, Ronnie Khan is really in the lane. So there you it's go. amazing, so we'll, isn't it, when you think up. about the log- even the logistics of that, just organising 38 million meals. You know, wow, isn't that incredible? Well, it's funny because I, I borrowed a dollar from the chairman of this organisation hmm. and I gave it to Ronnie and uh, she said, "By every from every dollar we collect, we hmm. can give away two meals to somebody who is in need of feeding. Awesome. So, um you know, that was a pretty special thing. And uh, what was really gratifying at the dinner I was at that I, I got back to my seat mm. after doing a little segue to introduce um, a guest speaker. Hang and on, before I, you go on, so they pay you to speak and feed you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm in the yeah, wrong my, gig. I'm in the my, wrong gig. My glutarded <laughs> meal. Um, but what was really cool, I go back to my seat where my <laughs> meal was sitting waiting for me and there was about 300 400 bucks in cash that oh, had been wow. dropped under my glass of water Unreal. from executives who went, Fantastic. well, if a buck can feed yeah. two people, yeah. uh, here's 50 bucks. So yeah. um, Gives you hope, it, doesn't it? Honestly, it brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, Just, that's great. Uh, you know, Fantastic. 
The nice generosity work. of Australian corporate executives, uh, you know, mm. in a lot of cases, is, is way undervalued. So absolutely, um, that, that, that's all I could do for a dollar. If I gave you twenty cents, what would you do with it? Oh, what would I do with it? I could spend it pretty quickly. In fact, I'll spend it right now. Robbo's twenty cents worth. Sweet. We've given this guy a lot of coverage in the last few weeks, but God, he deserves it. Jamie Oliver's in the news again, mate. The big J. The big J, the big J-O. <laughs> I'm a, I love my cooking and he's a bit of a hero of mine and I know he is of yours. But mm. um, in another victory for the, the Mojo police, shall we say, and, the, and more importantly, the health police, <laughs> he's just won a court case against McDonald's in the UK. Have you read about this? No. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. McDonald's proudly proclaimed, or used to proclaim, they can't anymore, in the, in the UK that they used real beef in their burgers. Jamie sort of took a bit of a closer look at that and found out that it was actually only 15% real beef. Ugh. You know what the other 85% was? I hate to think. It's only, it's, I don't know what it is. It's only described as a meat filler, Ugh. which has been cleansed with ammonia, which has been proven to cause stomach and intestinal cancer. Mm. <laughs> so Jamie out of his own pocket, took these guys to court and it's been going on. I've been following it for a little while. It's been going on for at least two years I've been following it. Really? He, uh, he's, only, he's just won the court case. So they can no longer proclaim that they use real beef in their burgers. So um, good on you, J.O., yet again. Yeah, J.O. I mean, I, I love the fact that Mojo Police are siding with J.O. We just, <laughs> yes, uh... indeed. <laughs> <laughs> not J.Lo. No, not J.Lo. No, no, no. no, no, no. Let's get that straight. Exactly. <laughs> Now, um, now, did you put your hand in your pocket? You've got, a, you've got a 20 cents to spend as well, I hear. Yeah, flick it over. Now, this is a blog that I found on LinkedIn and mm. um, it was actually about Richard Branson. Mm. And he said that, this is a true story, he said, in his experience, 99% of people in leadership roles don't take notes. And he said he was recently at a meeting with 30 chief executives for a dinner table conversation about closing the gender gap. And the conversation went on. He said there was loads of valuable insights coming, yet he was the only person who took notes the the entire time. And his quote was, and boy, did I take notes. I ran out of white space and had to write over my notes, my hotel notepad, my report, and even (laughs) my name tag. (laughs) Now. It's funny that when you are out talking about Mojo and you mm. say to an audience, who's got Mojo? Branson is always in the top three. Yeah. And there's a reason that these guys have got their Mojo going on. There's a reason they are successful. We don't want to compare ourselves to them, but we can certainly nick a lot of the stuff that they do and apply mm. it to our own world. Yeah. And what I love that the back end of uh, this blog was written about um, Branson and taken from the Richard Branson's blog on virgin.com. Mm. He said, no matter how big, small, simple, or complex an idea is, get it in writing, like write it down. Yep. But don't just take notes for the sake of taking notes. Go through your ideas and turn them into actionable and measurable goals. Nice one. If you don't write your ideas down, they could leave your head before you leave the room. And I've got to say, it's something with this 700 CEOs uh, when I was doing this setup to the day, I emphatically, I talked about this blog and I hit them over the head with it. And it was yep. really interesting. Once I reminded them and encouraged them to do it, the majority of guys were just writing all day long. In fact, one guy walked up and said, I had nine pages in just the afternoon session of notes he'd taken. Wow. So, I mean, we've talked about journaling before. Mm. We've talked about gratitude journaling and stuff. I just think this is a cracking bit. And because Branson says it, you know, it must be, uh, must be good. So there's my... Um, 
there's my 20. And the other thing I would say just with that, something I found particularly valuable is when I'm taking notes, I have a different colored pen for my actions. So at the bottom of each page, I might have taken content down, someone speaking or a meeting or something. I then write a different colored box at the mm-hmm. bottom of each page with what am I going to do about this? And it's easy then to go back through your pages and harvest out the important bits to put into your um, action plan. So there's yeah. um, there's 25 cents worth, mate. Nice one. It's interesting too. I just on that, do, do you reckon sometimes um, that people think that they're a bit too cool for school, that, that they need to take notes, that they'll, they, 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 they think they'll just get up and walk out and remember it all? Is that, I mean, you work around people who should be taking notes a lot, especially with the things you've got to say. Do you think that's part of it? Um, yeah, I do think it's part of it. I think I think there's a number of number of things. I think some people have been brought up on the fact that they go to meetings, just sit there and listen, mm. and they think in their mind they're getting value out of it, and then in yeah. fact they're kidding themselves. Yeah, I think some people don't value learning. Yet, mm. if you look at anybody who's successful in any venture, you'll find that the bigger the, the people who earn the most learn the most. Mm. Learners are learners and not just in money terms but in sense of spirit and contribution and wisdom and everything else. Mm. Um, and then thirdly, I think some people are. I think they're just too cool for the room and they think by writing things down it sort mm. of shows. I think you know, it's really interesting, Robbo. I think it's a very good angle to use. I think some people do sit there too cool for the room mm. and I think in their mind if they write things down, they're actually saying, you've got something to offer that I didn't know. Yeah. If I write it down, I'm admitting the fact that I didn't know that and you did, which makes mm. me look stupider compared to you, which is just complete crap. Yeah, silly, isn't it's, it? Uh, it's just, it's ridiculous and it's a shame. Yeah. And I hammer it now for people to say, buy a journal, buy a notebook, yeah. take it with you everywhere, write the stuff down because otherwise you're just wasting your time and my time because you're not going to learn anything. That's right. right. Absolutely. That's what we always hammer to people in the, the Mojo Radio show is to um, take notes. To take notes, write things down. We talk yep. about it in the posts we have on Facebook and yep. everything else. And I must say that when I listen to other people's podcasts, like Tim Martin from Net 101 and the guys that we've had on the show, I will stop the car from in the car and I will write stuff down or I will, mm. I will stop the broadcast and memorize <laughs> something to the next red light yep. that I can stop and write it down because I know if I don't, yeah. Like Francis says, it leaves my head before I get to the next set of lights. Absolutely. I mean, there's times I've stood up from a meeting and forgotten stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is. I say to people, if you don't write it down, you will not remember it past your next cup of coffee. Absolutely. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please. You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. We've got a big one this week. We've got, um, we've got a famous person. Who's our guest? I didn't write it down. <laughs> Roger Black. <laughs> oh, Blackie. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, Gold Medal well, Man. Our guest this week, uh, folks, is a world champion, an Olympic champion, yeah. a European champion, yeah. a Commonwealth Games champion, yeah. and uh, he is a very well-recognised athlete in London. And hmm. any British person you talk to and you mention Roger Black's name, they will certainly know him and hmm. recognise him and I would say in a lot of cases admire the work he's done on the track in commentating for the BBC um, and or in business. He's also a fantastic corporate speaker. But there's a bit of history this. Roger and I met overseas many, many years ago at a conference where we were sitting down together with 
a couple of thousand other people, mind you, and we were articulating our dreams for the future. And when you're doing that over a few days and laying everything down on a piece of paper and putting it back together again in terms of the dream of what you want and not what you think you can do, but what do you really want out of life? It's you really open yourself up and we became very, very close mates very, very quickly. And it's a number of years since then. We've done a load of speaking gigs together. We've travelled around Europe speaking together. He's become a really good mate and uh, absolutely delighted to have him on the show today. So, Roger Black, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Good to speak to you, Gary, as ever. Very, very nice to catch up, buddy. Lots to talk about. Um, just for yeah. the people who may not be familiar with your athletics career, can you just give us a quick summary of the journey you went through with your athletics? Uh, well, I'll keep it as quick as I can. Um, I wouldn't expect people in, 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 in Aussie to, uh, to necessarily know me, but uh, I was the guy that beat down Clark. A lot of problems. Well, the problems might well know me. Um, <laughs> and there's such a connection. I, I, you know, so basically, I was, I was a British 400-meter uh, runner, a 4x400-meter re- relay runner back in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, came came to the sport late, and I think you know that that that's quite interesting about me. Didn't really take take it take up track and field seriously until I left school at eighteen. I messed up my my A level exams and had to retake. But I had the talent, and uh, you know I played lots of other sports: football, cricket, rugby. But I was quick. You know, I was that kid that was quick. And uh, joined the local athletics club and was lucky. You know, I happened to train with two athletes that had just come back from the Los Angeles Olympics. It happened very quickly for me. Um, and, and really found the passion, um, became the Commonwealth and European champion uh, the year later, actually beating Darren Clark in the final of the Commonwealth Games in Scotland. Oh, there you go. Big shock, because Clarkie was the big favourite. You know, he was the star. And, uh, and that was my, my moment of suddenly realised, whoa, hang on, better than I thought. Won the gold medal. And, 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 and then off I went. But as I look back over my career, my career was... was with littered with injury, as it is with many athletes, you, know, you have these these moments of health, and you, if you've got a bit of talent, you're going to do well. Um, but but I I missed many years through injury, broke my foot to, uh, to, to in the early days, but managed to come back. And I suppose my greatest achievement was winning the Olympic silver medal in the 400 meters in 1996 behind the great Michael Johnson in Atlanta which for me was amazing. In, in, in your current world now, you are training people with Steve Backley at, at Backley Black. You are got this platform called iPerform. You're in the business world. Looking at people today, Roger, that moment where you realised and had an appreciation and you went, you know, I actually can run fast. I could do something with that. Do you are you seeing that today with people in the business world who don't realise their talent? And do you think there is something that you can draw upon to help you realise that talent? Well, I, I mean, we're in the business of, of translating Olympic performance into the workplace. But you know, to really knuckle it down, the space that interests me is the space between talent and performance, because whether it's sport or business, there are a lot of people who have a, a load of talent who don't realise how good they are and they waste that talent. In the same breath, there are people who don't have as much talent, but they max out on what they've got. And, and it's, it's, it's that space, and it's getting people to, to really stop and think. Because I know you're a sort of big, big you know, believer in this. You know, we, we all get busy. You know, life is busy. Um, and, and we get busy fools, and we don't stop and we don't think. When I was an athlete, I, I was busy training, but I was forced to stop and think. Because the thing about track and field is... You've got to do it now. 
you don't really get many second chances. You know, you mess up the Olympics, you've got to wait four years. It's a long time. You're forced to live in the present, plan for the future, but you're forced to live in the moment. In business, it's not quite the same. I think in business, things move all the time. We all get busy and life gets in the way, work-life balance and all that sort of stuff. And I think a lot of people out there who have much more talent than they think, um, uh, but, but life gets in the way for them to really follow their passion, follow their talent. So all we do is, is, is inspire people but also give them the tools. But I absolutely think that, that, that the majority of people are, are just really busy and, and most of them are not actually following their heart and following their, their passion and their talent. We've worked together a number of times and I've, I've heard you speak and I always love hearing you speak. You talk about the fact that speed was your ticket and you finally worked out what your ticket was. Do you think there is a step that you and Steve have worked out that people could sit down right now with their journal to help them work out that ticket, what to focus on? I think, I think it's – what I would say is I think it is, it's quite easy for sports people to tell their stories, I think, because, because with sport, it's pretty obvious if you've got the talent, if you've been given the, what we call the ticket to the party. You, know, you can see the kid that can run fast or the kid that just has that natural ability. So it's a lot easier in sport to, to know – what your talent is. It's, it's, it's very obvious. I think in other walks of life, it's not so obvious. And I think, we, it, it, I think it's harder to, to take the time to really find out. It's not so much what is my talent. It's also what is my passion. What is the thing that really excites me? I think where, you know, one of the great challenges for a sports person is what you do in retirement. You know, you, you, you've done the thing that you're physically gifted at, the thing that you know, you'll be very passionate about and the thing that you've had success for. But in most cases, you retire young. And people are always interested with people like me. You know, what, what, you know, what's the journey after the Olympics? What do you do for the rest of your life? Um, and I think that the answer is you have to go back. You have to find out what is, okay, I can't run fast anymore, but what are the parts of that? What are the parts of, of what I did that really make me and, and give me, give me that energy and give me that, that, that excitement in life. And for me, that was, that was you know, the, the, the performance side of it, the, the, the motivational speaking, also growing, building a business, you know, not standing still. No one achieves in the world of sport by standing still. You always have to make little changes. You always have to come up with new ideas. You always have to evolve, even if you're a Usain Bolt. You, know, you, you can't stand still, you go backwards. And it's the same in business. So I think it's, it's a lot harder in business to find the thing that really motivates you because you can get caught in the trap. You can get caught, you know, living someone else's goals and living in, you know, in, in you know, big organizations or whatever. Um, I, I think sport forces you to really dig deep and, and take accountability for your performance. No one's going to hold your hand in the Olympic stadium when you're, you know, lining up behind the line, you're on your own, even though you've got coaches behind you and support ultimately you're on your own. Um, I think you can hide in business. Um, so, so I think, it, you know, I think there are lots of parallels, but there are differences. And, and, and the biggest difference, the biggest challenge in retirement is life can never be as clear for me as it was when I was an athlete ever, because it was so simple. You knew the day, the time, the place of the Olympic final. You knew where it would be. You had a pretty good idea who would be there. You knew what you'd have to do. And even with that clarity, the majority of people <laughs> get distracted along the way. In business, things move and change all the time. You know, it's very hard to have that clarity and that focus. And a lot of our work is spent helping people get a bit more focus, knowing that they can't have absolute clarity because it, life just isn't as clear as the Olympic Games. Um, you know, Olympics is brutal. It's brutal. You know, you, you know, it's, it's, there's no subjectivity there. 
you know, you cross the line first, you get a gold medal. You come second, you get a silver. Third, you get a bronze. Fourth, you don't get anything. Um, but that simplicity and that that clarity is quite liberating, actually. Um, but it, it's it's a big struggle for sports people in retirement because life is never as clear again. I want to just just on that. I want to take you back to 1991 and an event that. Yeah had an impact on British sport and it was the World Championships 4 by 400 metres yep. and the yeah. British team that you were a part of won gold. The wind freshening as they get away and Roger Black in lane number three goes straight away, closes right down on the Jamaican. The American Valmont has started fast as well. Into the back straight though, it's Black at this stage is cut right back on the Jamaican Pat O'Connor. Also going well is Valmont of America and right on the outside, Kitar of Kenya. What are you most proud of in looking back at that race at that moment, what are you most proud of and how have you applied that to your business life today? Can Akabusi do it? Akabusi has a go and the American is beaten and he's fighting back. Akabusi has made it. Akabusi, gold for Britain. America second and Jamaica third. Well, that race, just to give people the background, in 1991, a team of four Brits who on paper were not as good as the four Americans um, came from behind to become world champions. Um, it was a big, big deal. It was almost the, the perfect theatre, you know, the four underdogs coming back. The reason we won, actually, was that we dared to do something different and we, we challenged convention. In the relay, usually you put your fastest athlete on the last lap. Let, lap. That's what people do. We realized that we couldn't do that because if you're out of contention as soon as the gun goes, it's very hard to, 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 to get back into the race. So we changed the running order. So I went first. I was the world silver medalist that year. I went first as the fastest runner. And we almost did it in reverse. And then our second fastest runner, Derek Redman, went second. A guy called John Regis went third. And then a guy called Chris Akabusi ran last. Um, came from behind to, to win gold. But the, the lesson there, absolutely, is that is that it was it was a, a relatively small change. We just took we just moved the running order around a bit. But the lesson was was that we dared to win. We did something different. We we changed the winning formula, um, and and more importantly, we took accountability for our performance as a team rather than being told by the management what to do. Because actually, the management were kind of resistant to that change, and that ownership gave us a sense of. Um, power, a sense of, of real accountability and belief in each other. And, and it was that um, and daring to do something different um, and also having a very strong belief that, that, that we had the ability, that Chris had the ability on the last lap to beat the guy who, who, who was going to run last because he'd just beaten me just to win the world championships, though, 400 metres two days earlier, and I'd, I should have won the race. So Chris knew, because he trained with me every day, he knew what it would take to, to just get past him. Um, so there are so many lessons from it, but it, it, it's probably the most famous race that I ever ran in. In the end, it, at the time, it was just a running race. But actually, in, in reflection, you realize that the principles applied to that decision. And then as a result of making that decision, the accountability and then running for each other, not just running for ourselves. You also you understand you've got four individual athletes who have spent most of the year competing against each other who come together as a team. And, and that was easier said than done, but we worked on that. You know, we were able to put our egos to one side. We were able to realize that there are two hats to wear. One is your individual hat when you do your individual, but there's a team hat to wear when you're, a t when you're in the team. And a lot of people couldn't wear those two hats. A lot of people struggled just to go from being an individual to a team. We didn't, and we created a culture within that, that squad 
that, that if you were to be in that squad, you had to put your, leave your ego at the door. There's an interesting piece at the end of the video that I watched that talked about the American team. And the commentator did mention how Chris, by crossing the line as the fourth runner, does kind of get the glory of the win. And what it took for the thinking differently for you to go, well, I'll run first and leave that ego aside. But in the end, it really paid off, didn't it? And I always make a joke about that. It's probably the biggest laugh of my speech. I acknowledge that, you know, make a joke that, you know, he got all the credit and we did all the work. But, but the truth is, the truth is, you, you have to think about the big picture. And what we all knew was this, was that if, and the others will all say this, if I did not run first, it wasn't about who ran last, by the way. It was all about who ran first. And if I didn't run first, we couldn't win. Because the problem with the relay is that if, if a gap of five metres is created, it's very hard to make it back. You, you become detached so the Americans, if they're five metres in the league, can just run free. And they're so much faster than us. They could just go. There was nothing for them to worry about or react to. So by me giving us a lead after the first lap, it did two things. One, it put us up there. So we were in, in contention. But more importantly, the Americans were having to race us. They weren't able to be free. They couldn't just run nice and smooth and, and off you go, carefree. They had to, they had to fight. They had to be, they were affected by Derek Revan. They were affected by John Regis breathing down their neck. So, so by making that decision, it wasn't just that we empowered ourselves. We also made them disempowered. They started reacting to us. And they didn't like that. They didn't know what to do in that situation because they weren't used to it. They used to just running free and off you go. How fast can we win this? How, how fast can we run this? How far, how far can we win it by? That was all changed that night. They had to race. And funny things happen when you, when you have to race rather than be free. And, 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 and the rest is history. Can I put something to you, Roger? I'm, yeah. I'm a bit of a rugby tragic, and, and one of my heroes is Nick Farr-Jones, who's very famous from, yeah. well, from your era yeah. of running. Um, and and he, he has a quote, and I can't quite remember it, but it, it's something along the lines of continual involvement in, um, involves um, an understanding that there's always a better way to do things, no matter yeah. where you've come from or how comfortable Absolutely. you might be with where you are now. So in other words, he's talking about sacrifice and what you were just talking about is pretty much you know I mean in reality you sacrificed the the, the glory of, of crossing the line for the betterment of the team um, yeah in business that's also really important too isn't yeah, it yeah it is but I th- but ultimately you, you, the most important thing is is what's the outcome here what is the what is the chosen outcome and the outcome for us was very clear to become world champions so so that that took precedent over everything and, and the only thing that mattered was, was how would we achieve that? And, and we knew logically that the only way we could achieve that was by me running the first leg. Um, so yeah, I can joke about ego, but you know, it wasn't that hard for me because all I really wanted was for us to be world champions. We didn't get that opportunity very often, by the way. So, so you, you, have, you have to, one, you have to recognize this is an opportunity. Many people sort of don't recognize their opportunities. And, they, you know, and then you've got to do something about it. So... It, to be honest, you know, I didn't have a sleepless night thinking I'm not going to have any glory here. I knew that the chances are we couldn't win if if, if we ran it any other way. Um, but I think the key to, 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 to it all is, is is to have what they call a growth mindset, to always be looking for little ways to improve. Because when you're the best, up, up there with the best in the world, um, you know, you're not going to make a big change to, to get a massive improvement. You, you, you just got to look for the little changes. And, and, and the better you are, the more impact those little changes can make. Uh, Roger, you mentioned before overcoming adversity and 
When you face adversity in your career, it's obviously very public because you, having done so well, you've got a very public persona now. You've faced personal things, you've faced athletics things, maybe business things. How does Roger Black personally, what do you go through when you face adversity? What's your go-to process to help you overcome? It's not easy and it doesn't change. Um, I think one of the challenges of having a profile, look, I will never have, you know, I was, I treat, I look at myself as a very, very lucky person. I was lucky to be born with the ability to run fast. I was then lucky to have just been around the right people and to have come out of a career that could easily have ended early with injury with Olympic silver medal and to stood on the Olympic roster and complete. You know, for any sports person, if you, if you have a sense of completion, then you've nailed it. You know, because naturally you're, you're always looking for more. You always think you can do better. I knew that when I was still on the Olympic Russian in 96, that was it. That was more than I ever could have wished for. I couldn't be Michael Johnson. And then to be world champion in the relay and all that sort of stuff. So I look back over my career with gratitude. However, ego is a very difficult thing because you're suddenly you're, you're in a world of ego and your whole significance is wrapped up by who you even now, and I'm 50, you know, even now my significance is wrapped up on who I was. Now, I remember you and I at a conference once, and I think there was a famous Australian swimmer who stood up in the middle of a conference and shit, you know, retired swimming with, with a swimming hat on her head and, and, and thinking, you know, there's your, there's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to let it go. Now, I, I, have, I have let it go as well as I think many people could. I've moved on. I, I, you know, those days are over. However, everything I do is related to what I did on a running track. Um, everything I do is related to being recognized and, and, you know, significant, so to speak, in, in the United Kingdom. And it's all good. However, there are challenges because, you know, there are challenges. And, you know, you, 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 what you can lose is your sense of really understanding who you are. And sometimes who you are is very different to how you are perceived by other people. Um, and there's a little barrier that goes up if you're if you're well known. And I don't have it bad. I mean, you imagine being a David Beckham or a, you know uh, someone like that. It's a whole different ball game. Um, but there is still a filter that that, that that is there wherever you go, and that's not a healthy thing because I think it's very hard to be completely congruent and completely you know true to who who you are when you have an aware, when there's a sense that everything you do people notice you. Um, so it, it can be a challenge, um, uh, and you know, life is about overcoming adversities, um, you know, whether it's breaking your foot or whether it's having to restructure your business or whether it's relationships or whatever. So the answer to your question is, where do I go to? Um, you, you have to go down back to your values. You have to understand your values, the things that matter to you, and you have to, to, to do that. So when I had the kids, I had nine-year-old twin boys, I made that decision. You know, I could be doing far more. I could be... On telly more, I could be making more money, I could be rushing around being busy, busy, but I made the decision to be a, an active parent, as I know you have. And, and that's, that's a great thing to say, but it actually it can be quite challenging because you, you do have to compromise somewhere. You have to compromise somewhere, particularly in your business life, you have to compromise. So it's always a bit of a, a, bit of a battle, and I do admire people that have that absolute clarity and consistency and are able to do that. And I, I don't think I've, I've mastered that. If I'm honest. Roger, I don't know if you remember one of the conversations we had, but I said to you, you just raced the 1996 400-metre final against arguably one of the greatest 400-metre runners ever. Like Michael Johnson was, was the man. You lined up at the blocks. 
And I said to you, mate, did you really believe you could beat Michael Johnson? And you said something mm-hmm. very like profound to me. You did, and it's, it's something that has stuck with me to this day through everything that I do. Can you remember what that answer was? Yeah. Um, th- did I really deep myself believe I could beat Michael? No. Um, I wasn't thinking at all about beating Michael. I'd, I, I was thinking what, what everyone at that level really does when, when you're at the very, very highest level and everyone around you is exceptional. The only thing in that moment is to, is to can I execute my perfect race? Can I absolutely cross that line, look back and know that I could not have run any faster? I knew that I could only influence that. I could not influence the outcome of the race. And all things being equal, Michael was going to win. I had no reference in my athletic life that I could on that day suddenly beat Michael. I didn't go there. You know, Michael, would, I took him out of the equation. And, 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 but don't get, don't get me wrong, I've been around long enough to know that Michael still had to win the race. And the greatest compliment ever paid to me, ever, was an hour of 40 minutes after that race. In the first moment, it was just myself and Michael Johnson sitting in the room before waiting to meet the world's press with his head in his hand going, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. And I said, come on, Mike, what do you mean? You can't believe it. And he said, Roger, you are never going to give me this gold medal, ever. He said, I've raced you for years, and I know I have to race you. This is a guy who was so much better than me and the rest of the world. That's the mark of the man. He never got complacent. So Michael knew that he could have made a mistake. Still probably would have won, but he could have pulled a hamstring. You know, yes, anything can happen. Um, For me, to try and beat Michael Johnson, I wouldn't have won a medal because I couldn't do what he did in uh, between 200 meters and 300 meters. I won't go into the details. So it's all where you focus your energy and my focus. And this is easier said than done. To run in the Olympic final and to take everyone else out of the equation and to just focus on running your perfect race it took me years to master. I hope that our listeners take this on because it's, it, that, that conversation we had has had a massive impact on my uh, career uh, in and out of work in lining up and not worrying about others but working out how you can execute your perfect race. I think it's such a profound piece of advice and I hope people apply that to their business, to their health, to their families, to being a husband or a wife, to being a dad, to being a community member, to be a researcher, whatever it may be. I just think that's such a great piece of gold. You know, the thing is, Gary, the Olympics is, is, is about lots of things, but what it does do is it forces you. You, know, you can't hide. You can't fake it. You know, you, you, you walk into the Olympic Stadium, the Olympic final, you will unravel. It will unravel you if you're not absolutely congruent. And I've walked into Olympics not ready, and I've been unraveled, and I've walked into Olympics ready in 96. But ultimately, at that level, the only test that matters is, is what we call the mirror test, which is after the race where you look in the mirror and what comes back at you. It can also apply to anything, really, can't it? I mean, I... Uh, in, in my rugby playing days, I played a grand final with, with one of the great clubs I played with and, and we came up against a team who who dropped one game all season, I think. And we went into the game and the pact to ourselves with that if they're going to score a try, they'll have to go around us. There's no way they'll go through us. Um, and we lost that day. We lost three tries to one, but but not one of their tries was scored in close. They, they, they had to run around us to score the tries. And, 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 you know, we all walked off the field as if we'd won. You know, it was, yeah. um, well, well, one of the questions we, we, we ask when we're doing a Backley that day, and Steve Backley tends to ask it, and he's got a fascinating story, actually, but that's an, that's an aside, is what is success for you? Mm. You know, you've got an audience mm. of people. Success is different for different people. Yeah. You know, but, but knowing what success is for you mm. 
you know, not the next person next to you, what, not, not the person, you know, what is it for you? What is success for you? It's really important, especially in business when you've got lots of people we put on our business face, you know, we sit in a room with colleagues, but actually, you know, do we really know, you know, we're all different, everybody's different. Mm. So if you take 96 and Michael Johnson, Michael Johnson's success had to be, I have to do the double and I have to try and break the world record. Well, that mm. wasn't success for me. Success mm. for me was, you know, running my perfect race in the good final and, and you know, at best probably getting a silver medal. Roger, you talk about Michael Phelps in some of your keynote speeches and Michael Phelps was very ritualised, uh, which is what Duncan Armstrong, our great Olympic gold medalist, would, would call him. So he would go through a ritual before on the pool deck, prior to racing, prior to the gun going, he had a ritual he went through. Are there any rituals that you had yeah, absolutely. as an Olympian absolutely. I, that you now apply to your business life? Um, well, there were lots more rituals then. Um, you know, I'd listen to music in warm-up. I'd have the same you know, process. You know, I'd, I'd normalise as much as I could wherever I was so that it was habitual. Um, um, I suppose we all do it, but I think I think I think the difference, and maybe maybe the answer to your question is, I probably do do it now, but I probably do it more subconsciously than I than I did consciously as an athlete. I think you know life's a lot more fluffy now. I'm a lot more distracted. You know, the kids are shouting in the next door. You know, there's stuff to sort out. There's this, that, and the other. Um, it, it's not as so simple. I think it, I think it's a, it's a lot harder. Let me uh, let me reframe it for you, um, Robbo. As much as this guy's won Olympic, European Championships, Commonwealth, as much World Championships, as much as he's won all those things, probably what Roger's most famous or well known for was being on Britain's Strictly Come Dancing. Now, come on. <laughs> Here we and go. Celebrity MasterChef. Here right? we go. Now I know come your mates. On. The sledging's already were started. There, <laughs> were there any routines <laughs> or lessons yeah. you took from your oh, Come on. Do you know, I got this question every day on Strictly Come Dancing, which was, you know, is this like preparing the Olympics? Hell no. It's a stupid yeah, dance program. Say, <laughs> of course it's not oh, like the Olympics. But I'll tell you, you what, in the moment... No, I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't take it seriously because no. I knew why I was doing it as well. And Master Chef was different because it was a skill, and and the cooking thing was was much more down my. You know, that was actually a lot like preparing for an Olympics because it was there was, you know, there was a start, there was a finish, there was a, a, a clarity to it, and I enjoyed working in, in a restaurant actually. Um, but nah, you know, of course, you know, a sports person has the ability to focus, to to, to step up, and you know, and all that stuff. Um, and so you can apply that. But what I couldn't apply was the sort of the, the more creative side to it, the more, you know, the, just, just dancing with my soul rather than dancing to a system. But, yeah, of course you have rituals. Of course you train, you prepare, you want to do the best you can. But, come on, I couldn't take it seriously. <laughs> it was just a silly dance show. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> you just like uh, uh, having um, trouble. What's the Roger Black brand stand for, mate? Well, it's a good question because I have a fitness company. I have the brand of treadmills and bikes and stuff like that, and that's been going for many years and still goes well. So, so, so you use the word brand, and I'm aware that there is a brand element to what a sports person does. I think there's a degree of trust. I think people trust the brand. I think people, I, I can communicate. I'm a paid communication. I think, I think you know, people will listen if I if I if I if I speak. I think I'm somebody who has a degree of humility, and I think in a world where you know a lot of top sports people don't, and I, and I think ultimately for me it was it was the ability to 
to keep things into perspective, but also to be able to step up and deliver when it mattered. But it wasn't easy. You know, the setbacks, the injuries, the, you know, I don't, didn't have a normal story. And I think, I think ultimately that would be the thing. I think it was the, oh, I'm a trier. I'm a trier. What's the one thing that you would say in your mind defines Olympic thinking? Um, uh, uh, the, the high performers, there are, lots of, there are loads of aspects to it, loads of aspects to it. Of course, it can't be that one thing. But I think what ultimately what separates people when you're in that arena is that absolute ability to totally be in the moment, totally be congruent, to know exactly why you're doing what you're doing and to have the ability to hand over to almost your subconscious and to step up and deliver. Many people can talk a good race. Many people can look good in training. But ultimately, the champions in the sport are the people that, that are able to really step up and deliver when it matters. And, and, and in our business, that was the Olympic final. Have you, have you been able to articulate in your mind a step that someone in business could do when they are doing a big presentation about to do a speech in front of the staff, some sort of pitch. Have you thought about an absolute go-to step they could do to execute to be absolutely present? Yeah, I think I think be clear about your outcome and then and then visualize it and rehearse it over and over again. I think the power of visualization is the key. And then and be authentic. I think authentic performance is it. You know, be yourself. Yeah, don't try and be someone else. People people feel that. They feel that in a room when someone's been been authentic or someone's not and have the confidence to be yourself and and that's that's easier said than done because we all think you know we have to be a certain way but authentic leadership people follow authentic leaders and people also sense when somebody isn't authentic so i think authenticity in performance is is, is crucial now we haven't asked the, i know you've got to go we haven't asked the one yeah. important question here uh okay. october october 3rd 2015 probably about 3 p.m at twickenham What's the result going to be? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're talking rugby world cup. Before, we're talking England versus I Australia. I know what you're talking. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Um, never, yeah, clearly, England are on the rise. England yeah. at home in England, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, yeah. Aussies. You, you know, you've never quite been the same. And uh, <laughs> um, so, we, it's, an, it's an England victory. Are we going to see Sam? Then. Are we going to see Sam Burgess at flanker or outside centre? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know in that detail. Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, I'll, I'll send you an email on the day and commiserate okay, you anyway. Roger Black, thank you very much, buddy. That was fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Roger. Cheers, Cheers man. Bye. See ya. Bye. The Mojo Radio Show. So, Gary, the obvious question is, have you challenged him to a race yet? <laughs> There's a lot of things I have beaten him in, but running <laughs> is not one of them. Even, you know what? Even, even the fact he's been off the track now for many, many years, mm. he's still so quick. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> and his legs are so damn long. And he yeah. takes one step for my three. He's um, yeah. he's an extraordinary guy. I mean, he really, whatever he turns his mind to, he makes a great success. And uh, mm. yeah, he's, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged to be able to call him a mate. Yeah, that's great. He's a nice guy. Mm, good bloke. Shame he's a pommy, but, you know, can't hold that against him. <laughs> we'll get him back on again, actually, because we, um, we only scratched the surface. I, I'm quite fascinated yeah. by this Olympic the focus that an Olympian has, you know, to put four years, eight years, oh, 12 years of work yep. on the line for a single moment of 40 to 44 seconds. So I think yep. we'll, get, um, we'll get him back on again and we'll talk more about that because that's something we can apply to speaking and business and strategy and mm. being a dad and, mm. you know, being a, being a husband or a wife and yep. being a community, being a coach. I mean, there's a lot of things we can apply it to. So, Absolutely. Um, I we, think the interesting thing, though, is you know, too. It's you're right. It's not just twelve years, though. It's like it's a, almost a lifetime up until yeah. that point, isn't it, of commitment? 
You know, it's not yep. just the training that goes into the four years before the Olympics. But um, very good, very cool indeed. Now, uh, a bit of housekeeping. You got the feather duster just over there in the corner, mate, <laughs> under the TV. There's a bit of dust. Just clean it up for me. Um, a couple of things. My my new website's finally up. It's only taken me what six months. Oh, no way. <laughs> You're kidding me. VoodooSound.com.au, folks, go and have a look. Interested okay. in your feedback? Yeah, so that's up. Um, and I'm nice also going to also going to do a shameless plug here, mate. Um, mm. Tanae, my missus, is uh, has just launched her own business doing is this handmade our first sponsorship. This is our, well, maybe you never know. You <laughs> never first know. Advertiser. Let's, let's get a few sales <laughs> through the door. Barefoot jewelry is the name of the business. It's all online. She's hand making um, jewelry hmm. for uh, that suits, well, in her words, suits your lifestyle. So she's hmm. the, the barefoot beach type. So it's that type of jewelry, if you can imagine that. So yeah, barefoot designs, all one word, .com.au is the address for that one. How about um, putting a few photos on the Facebook page so people can put hmm. a visual representation to what you just talked about. Um, and no, folks, we are not getting paid anything for this no. advertising wrap, <laughs> apart from the fact that Robbo will get his washing done. That's right. And probably a few, few meals cooked. <laughs> That's right, Dad exactly. Is, Dad is getting sugared in that. That's right. And I, went, and I won't have to sleep with the dog. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Again. Again. Um, That's right. Good on you, Tanae. Well done. That's, uh, <laughs> that's great. That's uh and thank you to our good friends at Corona, Mission Corn Chips, That's Tim right. Tams. Tim Tams especially. Can't forget Tim Tams. <laughs> <laughs> Skittles. <laughs> Give me some Skittles. Indeed. Now, um, now listen, to, uh, to play us out this week, have a listen to this. Let's take off. Let's go get lost. All the way down to Mexico. It's a place that leaves no regrets. Cross the What do you reckon of that? That's cool. Who is it? Mate, it's a band called The Dead Daisies, and uh, it's a band that's certainly getting my mojo going at the moment. That's the new single called Mexico. It's just, it just kicks butt. It's so cool. <laughs> Thank you to our good friends at Corona. Yes, exactly. <laughs> mission mission Crunches. Anything Mexican. Anything Mexican, we're all over it. Nah, these guys just deserve a plug because they're so damn cool, I reckon. But... um. They're touring Australia at the moment, guys. Uh, in October, they're going, you'll find them in Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Newcastle, Brisbane, and for those friends of ours across the Dutch, they'll also be in Auckland uh, yeah, cool. towards the end of the month. So um, check out the show notes or the Facebook page for the actual dates. I'll get them posted up there. And in the meantime, I reckon we uh, crank this up and uh, play out the rest of the show with it, eh? You got anything else? No, except to say that uh, the Mojo Radio Show is proudly presented by Jose Cuervo. <laughs> <laughs> You're keeping your fingers crossed for that one, aren't you, mate? Uh, someday we'll get something thrown. We'll get a bone. Someday someone will throw us a bone. That's great, mate. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen to the, uh, the Dead Daisies. That sounds wicked. And uh, see you next week. Cheers. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, 
See GaryBirdWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.